Welcome back to the Inside PNC podcast series, Unreserved, where the Inside PNC news team sits down with the senior most figures in the U.S. PNC market to discuss key developments shaping the industry. I'm James Saylor, U.S. news editor for Inside PNC. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jack Butcher, who serves as the president of recently listed classic car MGA, Haggerty. Welcome, Jack. Good to have you here. Great to be with you, James. This will be fun. I think probably the best place to start is probably just to understand Haggerty a little bit more. I think obviously with the public listing, people have gotten to understand the story a little bit better. You guys have been out in the media recently. So at this point, what would you say you think is misunderstood about the business or some misconceptions that, that people sometimes have? Yeah, great. Well, well, first of all, again, thanks for having me. Great to be with you, James. Um, you know, I, I think uh, one of the things we're, we're trying to overcome is this notion that we are just that little antique insurer uh, in Michigan. Um, while, yes, we certainly do insure antique cars and, and you know, older collectibles, uh, we have a material amount of our businesses made up of moderns, post-80s, some of the aughts, even teens cars, um, you know, cars that uh, are far more far more uh, modern than um, than people typically associate the Haggerty brand with. The other thing that I think is not widely understood is just how varied our business is beyond insurance, media content, events, experiences. So um, that would be sort of the, the general summary. We, I guess maybe to drill down on this a little bit more because we were obviously we were out at CIB in the fall and we were sitting in the parking lot and I was trying to drill down on what would be covered, what's not covered, and how do you guys define it? I think from what I understand, it's basically the use. I think that's a big part of it. It's, I think, vehicles designated for uh, recreation. If you want to expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, th- think of it as, as that car that you drive because you want to, not because you have to. So, you know, for example, in my own home, I do have a fun to drive car. Uh, typically, it sees the roadway on the weekends or when the weather's nice, not when it's icy and salty. Um, I, I have another car or s- several cars that are used for uh, errands. My SUV, for example, probably wouldn't be uh, a product of uh, a Haggerty, you know, Haggerty-insured automobile. So um, it's that fun-to-drive enthusiast vehicle that we want to be associated with. Yeah, and I guess one of the things that you guys have said recently in your marketing documents for the listing and whatnot is that the target market is like 43 million cars. That, that probably would surprise a lot of people. What, what does that look like? When we look at our overall um, available market, um, there are the cars and then there are the enthusiasts. So if you think about the cars, so we, we've actually uh, scrubbed data, um, publicly available data, registration data, um, and uh, auto media data to identify that there are 43 million registered collectible cars and enthusiast vehicles in the U.S. That's U.S. alone. Um, the, the, the number grows exponentially when you start thinking about rest of the world. So, you know, yes, we are very interested in those cars because those are cars that people typically enjoy. Um, we're, we're also interested in the enthusiasts because we offer a lot more than just the insurance that those enthusiasts uh, kind of enjoy experiencing from. 
Yeah. Have you guys gotten skepticism at all when you kind of throw out that 43 million number? I mean, a lot of this surprises people. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of curious as to, to what people make of it. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of the, the, the fun secret of this, of this hobby is, is just how surprising some of these numbers are, James. You know, you, you consider, you know, that, that 43, we have very high confidence that 43 million vehicle number. What's, what's kind of fun to think about, though, is that many of those vehicles became uh, sort of in that range because they were discovered in barns, in fields. They were restored. And there's so many more cars that are out there that aren't even sort of in that number yet. And an evolving group of enthusiasts um, that people don't think about. Uh, you know, young folks that are just huge car enthusiasts, and they may not even be able to see over the dashboard yet or even have a driver's license. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I was actually going to ask you a little bit more about as well. It's um, so when you look at that market opportunity, which obviously for you guys, that's that's basically growth. If you were to slice and dice that, what does that look like from the standpoint of vintage use, maybe the demographic of those owners? Because I think one of the things that Mikhail said recently when we did an interview with him was that. I think it was last year, like 50% of new submissions or insurers were millennials and, and Gen X. So, so what are the demographics of that huge target zone that you're trying to grow in? So if you think about it, you know, we, we you know, the world evolves with demography, right? So um, clearly you have a large cadre of enthusiasts who had sort of occupied the main space for decades that are now moving into mass retirement, the boomer generation. Um, there is a massive generation in the form of millennials coming up behind them. And they're now starting to, to, to spend their money on stuff that they can afford and enjoy and, instead of just sort of renting groceries. And, and like any of us, we, we tend to put discretionary income where, we're, where we have passion and want to draw joy. For, for the car enthusiast, that is anything having to do with cars. So we're seeing a, uh, one of our fastest growing demographic bands is that millennial band, um, where you're starting to see growth tail off in sort of the more senior boomer uh, range, right? Uh, probably not a particularly clever observation. Um, but then you have this, what's really exciting is even the younger generation, as we have redefined what our brand looks like and how it can be enjoyed by people. We have even younger folks, male, female, all over that are that are getting really switched on by love of the automobile or motorsport. Yeah. Well, I guess sort of expanding that question a little bit in terms of demographics, but even just the profile of car that you see kind of in, in that sweet spot that you're looking to grow in. And I think you even, before you said the fact that definition or what gets included is ever expanding target market uh, is it more of recent cars or what's kind of the profile of vehicle yeah so you know our our target is is going to be with what people enjoy collecting and driving so you know if you think about you know um, our, our our parents may have enjoyed older cars because it was what they might have experienced as a youth or as a young person or maybe even restored with a parent or friend well the same phenomena is at work with sort of the next generation. That's why we're starting to see, you know, um, post-80s cars come online. I mean, we just recently published our bull market list, which uh, is an annual list that people love to see. And we pick a number of cars that we think are actually 
quite valuable and, and looking to, you know, that likely to move in the market, um, the, the majority of those cars are mo- more modern vehicles. And they're things that, you know, you and I might have grown up with or restored. So, you know, we, are, are, we do look at our market share and we do look at our penetration and our growth rates, um, not only around age of the automobile, but type of automobile, right down to the mark. You know, our most popular marks in the book right now are still Corvettes and Mustangs and, you know, fun to drive American marks. But, boy, we've got them all over. The, the Japanese marks are coming up very strong among the millennials and, and uh, younger generation. Mikula said in the past before that a lot of them are low premium policies, which I'm kind of curious about because sometimes you, th- you think of hobby cars, you think they're really expensive, they're customized and things like that. And so then, you know, you figure you're getting insurance for that. It's probably going to cost you a fortune. Maybe you could talk us through a little bit the range of premium sizes and things like that. Yeah. So you raised another great, great uh, point, James, that might be something else that might possibly be misunderstood about the market or about us, right? I mean, it's so often joy of the automobile and collector cars tends to be associated uh, um, erroneously with just, it's kind of a a rich person's game. Well, it's not not at all the case. I mean, our our average, the average value of collectible and enthusiast vehicle in our book is, uh, hovers around $35,000. And so we've got some that are way lower than that. And of course we have uh, a number that are quite a bit more valuable than that. But, you know, so you've got. It's important to understand that that this is this is a hobby uh, that we are supporting, and our vision is to make this accessible for people, no matter what their income level, no matter what kind of car they love. As long as they love the car, they love driving. We want them in our ecosystem. Um, in, in terms of, of of the types of cars, yes, you we have the you know the, the big Ferraris you read about in the headlines that fly off the block at the auctions for tens of millions of dollars. But you know what? It's it's the, the, the young kids coming up now, maybe in university, that just want to wrench a car and restore it and drive it on weekends. We may want to talk to them too. What I find so interesting about this conversation, it's almost easy to forget that you're talking about insurance because it's, you know, the lifestyle aspect of the brand is so huge. And so you guys have a very unique affinity approach, even amongst folks who sell insurance through affinity channels. So could you talk a little bit about just how you guys have developed that, what the following is like, what's unique about that in the industry? One of the things I remember seeing at one point is you got the, your magazine just has this massive circulation. So if you could just talk about that a little bit, also in the context of the insurance industry, because it's a little bit unusual. Yeah, sure. So, you know, you raise an excellent point, James. You know, we, we, we participate in over 2,500 automotive events across North America every single year, right? In non-COVID times, right? But under normal circumstances, we are at everything from the local cars and coffee in the, in the parking lot on Sunday morning in your, to- in your town to the massive events like Pebble Beach or Amelia Island um, or Scottsdale auctions, right? So we are, we're engaging these folks. And typically when we engage them, these folks will, will, you know, they, we, they may see somebody dressed in a Haggerty brand and they'll come running up to them to share some experience they had possibly in the call center, right? Where you call the call center and it's, it's not a typical call center experience. The whole music's kind of fun and cool. Uh, you know, our people <laughs> want to talk about cars. Um, when people rush us on the show field or at an event or at a track, 
we're not talking about insurance. We're talking about their car. We're talking about an experience <laughs> they had driving, right? And and often um, may not be popular uh, for me to talk about within our walls, but oftentimes it's it's the member or the prospective member who brings up insurance to us. Say, hey, why why aren't we doing? Why aren't you writing my insurance? Well, great question. We'd love to. So it's, insurance is often not the first thing we talk about. In fact, it's it's mostly about the car. That's the first thing we want to talk to them about because that's where their passion lies. And that's what's amazing too, because there's the stereotype or the idea that nobody likes to buy insurance. And obviously there are a bunch of insure tech companies out there kind of trying to change that. People talk about making it delightful. Can I, can I just make one comment, James? You know, my, my view on the insurance piece of our business, because we're dealing in a, in a enthusiast space and a passion space, if you have to buy insurance because the law requires you to, why not make it fun? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the business model, right? Yeah. Observing the company, one of the things that stands out that's really unique about the strategy that's been so effective is this omni-channel distribution strategy. I mean, can you talk through something, the thinking behind that, how it's been successful, what it looks like? Because I think the thing that would probably surprise a lot of people is the extent of relationships that you have with some of the biggest auto writers. Let's not forget you guys are an MGA and the capacity that you have behind you. So um, maybe if you can get into some of that. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Yeah. So, you know, again, we want to make we want to make the hobby as accessible to as many people as we can. And we want to make ourselves accessible to many, as many people as we can. And that means they, you know, pe- people consume automotive content and insurance capabilities th- through any number of media, right? So you, direct channel, for example. Now, that direct channel is about 45-ish percent of our, of our revenue. It comes in direct. Somebody sees us at a show or they see us online or they just want to call in and engage with us. Um, so that, that's an important channel for us. We also do uh, a great deal of our business through independent agents and brokers, right? So, you know, many people can't be bothered with insurance. They just, they have somebody to do it for them. And so we will, we will be contacted by the representatives, uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be able to serve them that way through their appointed intermediary. And then the, the other channel, which I think probably gets most of the conversation and curiosity is, those carrier partners with whom we do business. And these are people that people would otherwise consider a competitor to us. Well, we've been, we've been partners with many of these folks for years and years. And so we've, we've turned earth, earth, erstwhile competitors into partners. And, and we've, the, the, the way we've done that is we've said, listen, we don't, we do one thing, right? So if you're a general, uh, general personal lines carrier, for example, you want the household. Uh, we don't represent a threat to them on that household. And, and, you know, what we say to them is, listen, consider us as sort of your center of excellence, right? The boutique inside the department store, Intel inside, however, whatever metaphor you want to use, where we can say, you focus on doing the, your very best work on the household. We'll focus on the driveway and the garage because that's the one thing we do. And we do it really, really well. And, and that, that creates, that takes tension out of the shoulders of these, of these partners realize we are staying in our swim lane um, and we got decades of, of history and performance to, to demonstrate uh, you know our reluctance to be sort of get shiny object syndrome into areas other than the automotive space this is what we do one of the things i was going to ask you is is how fragmented is this niche because it's obviously some of what you're describing and a key part of what you guys do is just the specialized expertise and the reason 
why you guys exist, or it, it's really just the unique knowledge of how to adjust claims for uh, these kinds of cars, you know, all the things that go into insuring them. So it's, what does the rest of the market look like in terms of competition? Sure. Um, well, you know, as, as you know, a number of analyst reports I've seen suggest that we're the largest niche enthusiast vehicle rider. And if you consider that back to that 43 million uh, vehicle Pam, we talked about, we've only got 2 million of them, right? So circa 5% of the market. There's no other one carrier out there that has the vast majority of it. It's sort of spread around to so your question. It is pretty, it is pretty distributed uh, across, you know, general carriers. Um, there are some niche players out there um, that, that, you know, are in our space. So it, it's a little bit all over the map in terms of, you know, the market that's available. How much of it is that some of the cars that you would insure right now are insured under you know your typical standard auto policy that in your guys' minds would actually be a better fit for what you guys offer? Yeah, so um, when we are uh, engaging with a new member, they're coming to us from somewhere and, and there's, there's one of two ways they come to us. Either they just, they love our content, they love our media, they come to us because they just love hanging around with us, which, which is terrific. Um, you know, I, there is an unfortunate reality, though, that sometimes they come to us because they may not have been necessarily served well uh, and, and, and they may have discovered it the hard way uh, in, in another model. This is a very specialized area of auto insurance, right? So we've got claims. We've got almost 100 claims people that do one thing and one thing only, collective car claims. And when you consider... You know, most people are used to the value of a vehicle, drive it off a lot. The appreciation curve does this. And we tend to get involved when it, it starts to do this. And people don't always think about that. So it might be insured at a more depreciated value. But a look at the bull market list, for example, that we just published will show you that cars that you might not consider being incre- you know, increasing in value are actually coming up. And so we want to make sure that those are insured right. And, and if, God forbid, there's a claim, it's handled properly uh, and, and not sort of just, you know, brushed aside as another auto claim. We just, when there's a claim, James, we actually send the vehicle a get, a get well card. That's how crazy <laughs> we are. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it has been interesting the more we've covered you guys and uh, learned about the business, just what a unique, interesting culture the auto enthusiast world is. And I think what's interesting too is also introducing that more broadly to the, obviously the insurance sector. So could you talk a little bit just how you guys see yourselves in, in the traditional insurance industry? And I think part of that question is, you know, right now you guys are an MGA, maybe some of the thinking behind that structure. And obviously a lot of your attention is focused on your customers and marketing, but maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you interact with kind of the rest of the B2B side of things. Sure. Um, so, you know, in, ter- in terms of, uh, as we think about the, the B2B side uh, on, on insurance, you know, again, insurance is something that people need to buy. So we want to make it as engaging as possible uh, as, as we possibly can. Um, we also want to make sure that the product itself is cutting edge. So, you know, our, our underwriting teams and our pricing team, they're constantly keeping an eye on the market and thinking about what it is enthusiasts need and want. How are they enjoying their automobile? Right. So not 
it's not just somebody who parks in the garage and drives it to a cars and coffee event in the park parking lot. These are folks who may actually enjoy, they may own a car that in order to really stretch its legs, they need to get it on a track. So, you know, we need to have products that will help them enjoy the car closer to near or on a track, right? You have cars that might be off-road in nature. So you really have to segment auto enthusiasts into sub-segments. You have people that are renters. You have people that are, that are modified. They love to modify cars. Resto mods is a term you'll hear, hear a lot in the hobby, right? It's, an, it's, a, very, it's a very specific subsector of the market, and we're developing capabilities and products that serve and content that serve those people specifically. One question I would ask, it's you guys go public. I think a lot of the assumptions people make when a company raises a ton of money, goes public, is trying to grow really quickly, is they're going to diversify, they're going to get into other lines of business, things like that. I mean, you've seen plenty of companies do that, but you guys have obviously been very vocal about you want to go much deeper into your niche. So if you could talk a little bit more about what that looks like and Part of the question too is is just trying to get a better sense of how broad is your your product set and to what extent are you looking to expand it? Sure, thanks. So you know the, the, you're 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 absolutely right, James. I mean we've all read stories of of companies that go public and and that the is sort of a, a a kind of an afterburner launch of of something you know wildly new. Well, what we're talking about here is continuing our journey. Of you know again, keep in mind our mission. Right, we are staying fiercely on mission, and that is to save driving for future generations. That's the mission of the company. Not something you hear a lot from an insurance company, by the way. Right, so uh, we are constantly adding capabilities that will enable people to enjoy driving, be attracted to the automobile and the culture around the automobile. You said something before. You know, car people, car people have a very unique way of looking at their auto, their use of an auto, their joy of an auto. One of the things you'll hear about a lot is, you know, you hear the term mobility thrown around a lot. Like how someone considers a vehicle that is designed to get them from A to B, right? Like my SUV, I need to go to the store and back is very different than the person who might view their vehicle as uh, a tool for competition, a status symbol, uh, a fun celebratory uh, experience for a spouse or a child or, or a loved one or a friend, etc. So we've got to stay very focused on the emotion around the automobile, and then reverse engineer products and capabilities that that serve that. In terms of the, in terms of insurance capabilities, you know, our folks are constantly evolving not only insurance product but services that um, enable the joy of an automobile. And when things go wrong, we want to help them get their baby back on the road as quickly as possible. Some of the unique claim capabilities we offer is, is, is something that actually, our, our NPS, James, actually, at a claim, goes up. Not usual in, in an insurance. Oh, wow. <laughs> our, our NPS goes up at a claim. So might have something to do with those get well cards, but mostly it's because of <laughs> speed and ease and making sure that these folks get what they need when things go wrong. We, That's we amazing. Well, so there's a couple of different interesting things that you talked about there. And, and I think one of the things that really stands out about your business is just obviously a huge personal touch. And that's something that I think 
you guys have really tapped into in terms of people valuing. I think there was some comments that you guys have made publicly just about incorporating tech into the business. And there's there's obviously, there's trade-off or tension, or sometimes actually people view tech and the human element as being very complementary. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what your guys' approach is to technology. I know you guys are in the middle of a big technology investment and what role do you see technology as having in your business? Well, it's, it's you know, once again, we, we say, you know, we talked a little bit about this before. We want to make sure that people can come to us however they want to come to us. Increasingly, right, people, including me and you, like we, we consume a lot of services on our mobile device. We, we need to be able to do the same thing. So a, a big part of our tech investment is going is around digitization. You know, we, we need to be able to d- deliver a digital service for those people who want it not at the expense of the high engagement model that we have built this company on. So many people, particularly when things go wrong, they want that human touch. I I like to describe it as high touch when you want it, high tech when you don't. And um, so we have to make sure that we're constantly evolving our technological capabilities and our experience uh, in a digital forward manner. Big part of our investment. There's a couple of things that you've touched on that, for me, it would be interesting to try to understand a little better. I mean, it doesn't matter where you sit in, in the insurance or reinsurance industry. Everybody's talking about disintermediation. They're talking about people coming from tech from outside. And certainly the auto line of business about it disappearing or obviously changing significantly based on what happens with autonomous vehicles. But you guys operate in a very interesting place where people are using these cars to drive for pleasure. And you'd have to think that a lot of the changes uh, being made with autonomous, that's that's not the case. Um, it's kind of a two-part question. One, is there any part of your guys' thinking where you're, you're worried about uh, an upstart tech entrepreneur coming from outside the industry, impacting you guys, disrupting the business, or even in a different sense, how people use cars fundamentally changing, whether it's autonomous cars or what have you, also affecting the business model? Yeah, great. So, you know, the... the, the um Technology, you know, do I do I worry about a tech entrepreneur coming in and disrupting the business, or you know, some big private equity firm rounding up capital and making a huge investment in the business? Listen, that in, in my view, as I as I read the trade press, um, that's happening today. People are coming in. There's a, there, you know, the, the insurance industry finally is attracting some technology investment just in the last sort of five to eight years, right? It's, it's, it was a little slow to the hoop as an industry, but boy, people are realizing there's a, there's a lot of opportunity to, to invest um, and to, to leverage technology for the benefit of consumers and for the participants in our industry. Um, you know, I, it, it, technology, you know, I, I always say to say to our guys, you can't get a haircut through the internet, right? You, you, this, is still, <laughs> this is still a, high engagement model with the option to just tap and get your service through your, through your mobile device. And we, we've got to be, we've got to be alive to both. Um, you know, we're, we're constantly scanning the environment for what it is members and enthusiasts are looking for. What do they want? And, and in a world that is evolving with lightning speed and certainly through, through the lens of a company that's evolving pretty fast ourselves, you know, we're constantly scanning for uh, technology opportunities to, to, to leverage our own platform 
for the benefit of the folks we want to serve. Right now, you're in the middle of a big tech investment. It's another thing that people think about after companies raise a lot of capital. They start asking questions around M&A. And you guys have actually a very interesting record around M&A, investing in things that a lot of people probably wouldn't expect an insurance business to be investing in. So if you could talk about a little bit about that and how that might evolve over time. Yeah, sure. So yeah, you, you refer to some of the, you know, we've announced um, acquisitions of events, for example, Amelia Island, um, Concord of America, Greenwich Concord, um, the Mila Mila, uh, uh, sorry, the Cal Mila up, uh, out of uh, out on the West Coast. I mean, these are these are uh, drive share, right? The largest peer to peer enthusiast vehicle uh, platform out there, um, and you know, sort of the Airbnb of cars, if you will, collector cars. Um, you know, our our acquisition strategy isn't going to change as a result of our, our capital structure uh, shifting a bit, right? Um, we, we have always been prudent with deploying our capital. Um, you know, we, we tend to look at, yeah, I, I believe this from my heart, like you, you become who you hire, you become who you acquire. So we've got to be really, really careful to acquire capabilities, talent um, that make us better for the market we want to serve for our enthusiast members. Um, so that that's a strategy that has been in place and will continue to be in place. I wouldn't expect anything radically different here. The assumptions people make after a company goes public, and I think you guys are actually somewhat unique just being a publicly traded MGA, but regardless of whether you're publicly traded, privately held, there's this huge phenomenon right now these insurtech MGAs transitioning to full stack carriers and the ones that haven't done so already are taking on more risk through captives. You guys have a captive. Could you talk a little bit about your thinking around the MGA business model? You're thinking around taking on some risk. When we spoke to McKeel, he said something along the lines, our future as a company is taking on our own risk. So talk through some of that thinking a little bit. Yeah, sure. So the beauty of the MGA is that we can offer it um, as a capability to um, our partners. Back to our partners again, right? These are these are folks that um, don't view us as a competitive threat. They want to grow other parts of their business far more uh, aggressively than perhaps the the uh, enthusiast vehicle market. Um, you know, talent out there around the enthusiast vehicle market is not. Uh, dropping out of the trees. I mean, it's it's uh, these are these are these are passionate people in their own right, and they want to hang out with other car folks. So um, that that's that's an important um, lever, I think, in our MGA. It is just a pile of of passionate car people who are in the insurance business, in the media business, in the event business. Um, so you know, in terms of, of risk taking, I mean, you know, McKeel, McKeel said it well, you know, we, we, we want to be sure we're being prudent, not only with our deployment of capital for acquisition purposes uh, and investment purposes, but we also want to make sure we're, we're using our capital prudently for, uh, you know, risk capital, uh, if I can use that term, uh, for, for the same benefit. Again, we want to build an ecosystem, continue to build an ecosystem, which is focused entirely on the mission. And if retaining more risk is, is uh, you know, one way to do that, that's great. 
listen, we've got we've got some partners that in, are incredible partners to us and have been for a long time. Um, that's that's not going to change. We need them, and uh, you know our, our risk taking capability will will evolve over time in, in collaboration with them. Yeah. So, I mean, just to just ask super directly, can you all envision at some point becoming a full stack carrier? You know, we, we want to evolve this company for the benefit of, of the markets we serve. Uh, James, we are, we are in business and, and partnered with some fantastic uh, risk-taking partners. And, you know, that, that is, that's hard-earned trading capability. Uh, we want to be. We will always be thoughtful and transparent with those partners about any plans we have in the future about our our risk capability, our risk appetite, as they are with us. So, um, you know, the, the, we want to make sure we're 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 thoughtful in how we take risk. Um, we want to be you know responsible with our shareholders' capital in considering that because that's a that's a different consideration as well. So, um, yeah, you know, we'll. We, we are constantly looking at different ways to evolve this business. Obviously, there are many people out there who are still getting to know you guys as a business. And probably the first time people are exposed to you, just trying to get their head around it. And I would imagine you guys probably maybe encounter some skeptics, some cynics, who maybe in some instances probably have some points. But I guess the one question I'd ask for you is, like, what do you guys see as some of uh, the biggest challenges facing the business and how do you see yourselves uh, overcoming them? Haggerty, like any other business, uh, we, we, we live on the world stage and we live in the same types of business environments and um, sort of environmental, we have to focus on the same environmental pressures as, as any other, uh, you know, for-profit enterprise. Um, you know, first of all, like most companies, um, is we, we like to say, you know, there's a war for talent. No, there's not talent one. Uh, you know, we, we we're constantly looking for really great people, you know, people who fit our culture, make us better and who will be admired in the job. I mean, those are sort of, you know, three non-negotiable for, um, you know, I, I think the other challenge we've got to constantly be ready for is sort of change agility. And I, you know, the, 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 the landscape of industrial history is littered with companies that just, didn't pivot or didn't pivot fast enough. And in a high growth company and a rapidly evolving world, that is muscle that is vital. It's vital in leaders and it's vital for anyone who sort of draws a breath in the building. You really need people who are comfortable sort of sensing and responding, testing and learning, failing softly, failing fast, but failing softly, right? So um, that that's the thing. Yeah, the other thing I would say is, you know, one of the big questions we get a lot is, you know, evolving regulatory uh, phenomena, right? So, you know, ESG is a big focus of ours. We, we, have, a, we have a team working on sort of how, how we're thinking about ESG, particularly environmental. Um, you know, you, you look no further than, you know, quarters of, of Europe where um, there are some cities that are uh, saying, you know, no internal combustion engines uh, after X date. Um, you know, how, how should we be thinking about that? Um, you know, by the way, the short answer is we love EVs. If you, if you really want to have a torquey good time, get into a Tesla or get into a, a, an electric electric vehicle. They will blow your mind. They, they are wicked fun to drive. Um, so, um, you know, those are some of the challenges we think through. 
I guess also as a publicly traded company, I mean, do you guys feel additional pressure to grow than you may have before? Well, we, we've always sort of had a self, self-inflicted pressure to grow, but we want to grow prudently. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we uh, clearly we want to grow because that's sort of the sort that's that's the plasma that allows us to reinvest in ourselves and hire more great people and make great technology investments and innovate additional capabilities that enthusiasts want to consume. So growth is vital in this world. Uh, you know, if you're if you're not growing, I think you're losing the battle because chances are your your, your competition are growing. You've already touched on this a little bit so far in this conversation. You talked about how vital it is the staff and finding the right people and all of that. Could you talk a little bit more in terms of the makeup of what you're looking for? It's It seems like kind of in this day and age, companies are placing a much bigger premium on people with data science skills, tech skills, coding, what have you. The workforce that you guys are trying to assemble, does it look any different than, first of all, how it does right now, but even just kind of other insurance businesses? And to what extent are you guys looking to scale up, let's say, in the next 12 months? Yeah, well, uh, there's certainly a help-wanted sign out, um, you know, and your point about, you know, tech tech capabilities and take tech talent, certainly, like the rest of the world, we're, we're looking for that. Um, we're making big investments, and that's part of our business, and, and uh, so that's certainly a, a talent acquisition strategy. Um, we clearly want people here who get us and get our members, right? So people who are, you know, of the automotive community or have great passions for the automotive community. What's kind of cool is we frequently will we'll run into, um, you know, university students, who aren't even out of school yet, but they might be part of, you know, I spoke to one recently, a Midwest university who was uh, head of the, of the university auto, automobile club, the, the car club, right? These kids get together and they talk about cars. They, they, they listen to speakers. They, they go for drives on weekends, little tours, day tours, etc. cetera. Um, these are folks that are naturally wired for the business we have. Um, and that's across media. That's across claims, customer service, underwriting, sales, even finance and legal. Like it, uh, some of our people just love our CFO is a, is a is a car is a car guy, right? And he 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 loves his car. So um, you know he, these are people. It, it it's awfully helpful to be able to speak the language and the dialect of the people you serve. Well, Jack, I think that's pretty much all the time we have. I really appreciate you stopping by. And thank you, everyone, listening. If you haven't already, please check out the Inside PNC website. Sign up for a free trial. And stay tuned for future episodes of Unreserved. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Mike, Jack. Yeah.